push play here and we'll get that recording. So we've been going through this series called Being Christian, right? That's, that's the goal, Being Christian. And we've been doing this for a couple weeks now. We began talking about God's provided solution to our chaotic world. If you remember, I, I had proposed that being not God throwing away his beautiful creation, this whole planet and everything that he has created, not God taking his people off of the planet and then wrecking the planet. Um, again, those aren't, those aren't the options or the solutions that God has provided. Instead, I had mentioned that God has an elected remnant people that he has put on the earth, that in the midst of any time that you see chaos or confusion in society, that God has an elected a people who are called to have clarity and conviction in our society. And I said that really with this, the healing of, our, of the nation starts with Christians being Christians. So that's what we've been taking a look at is how can we as a Christian community take a better look at how we can be Christians, how, could we, actually, how we could actually walk in line with what we understand we are called to be. And if we understand that God is not going to destroy the world to fix the problem, then how exactly is the problem going to be fixed? And I hopefully am bringing you on a journey to look at, well, how is God going to bring clarity into and you know peace and all of those things into our world? Last week, Pastor Steve and I co-labored in bringing forth a message detailing how we would be Christian and actually watch the media and pay attention to politics. Did you believe you could actually do that? You could still be a Christian watch politics, have conversations about political things, and still maintain your identity as a Christian. I would imagine for some of us, it can be frustrating. It can get hard. You, you, get, you, you watch politics, you wonder, you know, all is lost. I, I don't know what's going on. And, you know, we, we see a lot of frustration in those regards. However, I loved how Pastor Steve reminded us that our allegiance to Jesus Christ must be the primary factor that stands out. In all things, our allegiance to Jesus Christ must be the primary factor detail that people know about our lives. To me, that was amazing. That, was, that, was, that summed it up. If people could just, if I could be a Christian in my conversation, if I could be a Christian in my frustrations with the political scene, if I can, and I can express that, and I can have conversations with other people and have a little bit of humility and recognize, you know, love and recognize peace and all of those things are essential to my Christian walk, I, I believe that we can begin to see some clarity and uh, so forth in regards to politics. Again, very tricky topic. So I, I thank you, Pastor Steve, for being willing to come up here and help me out in that regard. And also, I, I hope I highlighted that we have a responsibility as citizens in this land, that we have a responsibility to what is going on in the political scene. It's not something that we can just kind of stick our head in the sand and ignore. It's not something that we can, um, you, you know, pretend that we have no part in. We, we are the, the salt of the earth, so we're here for a reason. That city on a hill needs to shine brighter than the dark cities that seem to be shining um, in, in our day and age. So, again, I, I believe that we maintained very well that his elect is called to be Christians, and we are called to do that even in regards to politics. And there was quite a few things, hopefully, that you got out of that, that you were challenged by and hopefully edified by in regards to the political scene. The goal of this sermon series is to truly exhort and challenge us to being Christian. Again, I will say it again and again that the healing of the nations is dependent, is contingent upon Christians being Christian. So also, I had a paper that I handed out to you all. I want to challenge you with this this morning before I go any further. I gave you a paper, and I asked you to list about five things that you feel every Christian should have, qualities that these Christians should have. So I want to get you thinking in that direction this morning. What are five qualities that you believe Christians should possess and then give me three verses out of the Bible that seem to allude to a Christian life. You know, I, I would say, I'll give you an example. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. It says, the goal of our instruction is this. Love from a pure heart, 
a good conscience, and a sincere faith. For me, that tends to be a lifestyle verse. If I could wake up every morning and I could say, I'm loving from a pure heart, I have a good conscience toward God and man, and I have a sincere faith, I'm living out my Christian walk. To me, that, that seems to sum it up very well. And many of you know me that, you know, I love those summary verses that seem to sum up the point. And uh, at least somebody could sum up the point. The sermon, the, the, I can't, but the scripture sure can. So uh, I'll tell you, I want you to do that. I want, I want you to really challenge yourself in regards to three verses and five characteristics. And what I'm going to be doing is taking notes on who actually gets me those because I will be tracking you down to find out your five things and your three verses. So please begin thinking in that area. This morning, I want to take us through one of the most mentioned and most basic elements of our Christian faith, yet also one of the most seemingly confused elements of the Christian faith. One thing we all know for sure, and everybody knows this verse, that we have eternal life through Jesus Christ. So if you don't know the verse I'm alluding to, I'm going to take you to John 3.16 and just remind you of this verse here. John 3.16, I should be able to just say it to you, right? John 3.16 through 17. Here I'm just going to read these verses for you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to judge the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So again, we see very clearly that through Jesus Christ, we have eternal life. Now, I went to a Bible study earlier this week, and at that Bible study, I heard it alluded to that eternal life is something that happens when we die, that we begin to live eternally. I want to challenge you this morning that that is not the correct notion of eternal life. Eternal life is to know Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you the scripture here in a moment that will prove that. Eternal life is something that you are living now. It's not something that you die and you begin. It's something that you die to yourself and you come into the body of Christ and then you have put on Jesus Christ. You have put on eternal life. And we're going to see that here in the scriptures. So, a couple things I want to make sure I, I do this morning is I want to help you understand what eternal life is. I want to further your appreciation of eternal life. And it's not just something that happens when you die and you get to go to heaven and be with Jesus. I want to further your appreciation and show you something bigger about this picture. And then I want to help you live it out. Obviously, you want to live out your eternal life. And I want to help you maintain it. Again, it sounds strange, but there is going to be a maintenance of your eternal life if you want to live eternal life to the full. So we're going to take a look at that. So another verse I want to take you to is John chapter 17, verse 3. And here, if you don't know what eternal life is, we're going to get our description. Actually, we're going to get our explanation of what eternal life is. John 17, 3. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I'm going to read that one more time for us. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So, eternal life. Let's first off, I want to explain to you the Greek. In Greek, eternal life is aeonios zoe. Aeonios means age enduring. A lot of people, they see the word eternal and they say, oh, that must mean forever. It doesn't mean that. Eternal simply means age enduring. And it's going to make sense here in a moment. And zoe means life. So, what we're talking about here, eternal life, is a life that endures the age. And what that should help you understand is that. Each age is characterized by a covenant. You see, there's two ages in Jewish thought. You have the the, uh, present evil age, right? That's the old age. And that age was characterized by the old covenant, the law of Moses. And then you had the age to come, is what the old covenant hoped for. 
which would be the new covenant, right? They hoped to live in the reality that we now enjoy, that we don't have to follow 613 laws to please God, that instead we can rest in Jesus Christ, knowing that if we love God and we love our neighbor, that we have now pleased God, that we have put on his righteousness. So in the old covenant, they had covenant life, but their covenant life was temporary. It was, again, if you remember in Deuteronomy chapter 28, Moses explains to them, this is life and death. I set before you life and death. Your life is going to be your obedience. You can listen to these laws and you can live. Or you could disobey these laws and you can die. That, that's your life and your death. We unfortunately, if you know the story, you know Israel chose death. Sin and death. Their age, their covenant, was characterized by sin and death. So they hoped for a day when they would have this life, this eternal reality with God, that they wouldn't have to fear being severed from their relationship with God based on disobedience. And if you don't know that reality now in Jesus Christ, let me be the first person to introduce you to Romans 8.1. That now in Jesus Christ, there is no condemnation. So you see, that old covenant characterized by a life of obedience and disobedience unfortunately resulted in disobedience. Whereas now in the eternal covenant, it's a matter of righteousness and non-righteous. We know that we can never be righteous. So what Jesus Christ has done is he's given us eternal life with no condemnation in him. That that now, in contrast to the old covenant where it was based on rules and laws and everything else, we now have life through knowing Jesus Christ. That if we know Jesus Christ, who God has sent, we put our trust and our faith in him, that we know that it's not about if I listen to this rule, if I disobey this rule. No, I rest in Jesus Christ. That my eternal life has now been given to me. You see, and this is important, what we call, a, we use a phrase around here, audience relevance, right? And what that means is you need to understand how it primarily applied to the first, those people that it was being spoken to. I understand that for us, 21st century Christians, having a freedom to just approach God in prayer, having a freedom to just confess our sins to God, seems like something that, well, of course, that's, that's what we're supposed to do, right? That's, that's what we have. We have Jesus. However, we fail to realize that if you lived under the old covenant, that was not something that, you were, uh, re- that was readily accessible to you. Prayer, even the simple thing of prayer, we take for granted. We think, you know, I just get to offer up my prayers in the name of Jesus and God hears me. The old covenant didn't understand that. You would have to go through sacrifices and make sure you're in good standing with the priest. And, you know, you'd have to worry about all these details to simply offer up prayer and say, my prayer has now been heard by God. So when we offer up our prayers and we say in the name of Jesus, what we're actually saying is I have faith that that prayer has been heard by God. I didn't have to go to a priest. I didn't have to worry about, does this guy like me? Is he really going to listen to me? Because you know those priests were really corrupt. So you had to worry. It wasn't about, you know, did I honor God today? No, it was about, does this guy like me? Do I have enough money? <laughs> you know, like, how am I going to make sure my prayers are going to be heard by God? So we have a privilege now where we get to just gather here this morning and just say, let's humbly come before God, die to ourselves, and lift up the, the, the praises and prayers of each other. We have that privilege. And I hope you see that because, again, it's, that's why it's so important to understand how it applied to the original audience. Everything we did this morning so far, the Jews would have hoped for. They would have said, I, I wish I could have that. I could just lift up my prayers. I could go to church. I can enjoy a free relationship with God. You could wear polyester. You could wear all kinds of different clothing. You know, half of you are sinning and you don't even know it if, if we're going by the 613 laws of Moses. So again, it's important to understand that, that their covenant life was based on obedience. If they, li- if they listened to the rules, they would have a relationship with God. And then unfortunately, get, now get this, it gets worse. So then when they died, not only is your whole life filled with this, got to make sure I'm being obedient. I, you know, I have to make sure I have enough money to pray, pay the priest. Now when you die, you, you wait, 
until the Messiah comes, and one day he's going to bring about a resurrection. Great. So my whole life was built on trying to please God, and now I'm going to be separated away from him for another 2,000 years, 1,000 years, however long, until all of these details are brought about. Well, thank God that in Jesus Christ, we go from glory to glory, that we now have Christ in our life today, and we know that when we eternally die, we just get to continue in the presence of God. And, you know, I have to admit, sometimes that sounds a bit strange, but I do believe that, you know, again, we we are alive simultaneously in a natural realm, and we are alive simultaneously in a spiritual realm. So we will live, but also I want you to catch that. Let Let me stop there real quick. We are alive simultaneously in both realms. You see, the spiritual realm isn't somewhere I'm going to die and go to. If you read in Ephesians 2.6, it says that the saints were seated in heavenly places as they were on earth being persecuted. Catch the power of that. That the saints during that first century in Ephesus were being beaten, dragged down, persecuted, and yet they were being seated in heavenly places. So they must have had two different, two different worlds going on. Right? One world, you look beat up, distressed. The other world, you're seated in glorious places in the presence of God. That's how we live our lives. Sometimes, let's admit it, sometimes you might be in life and you might say, I feel really beat down. You know, he's talking about eternal life, and it's going to get worse because I'm about to tell you that your eternal life should be fulfilling, that it should be enjoyable, that you should be getting the most out of life. So sometimes we don't feel that way. We have to be honest there, right? Sometimes it's like, I definitely feel like the first century saints, beat down, distressed, looking at the world. Yet I hope to God that I am seated in heavenly places. And we know that in Jesus Christ we are. That that's our simultaneous, catch that, simultaneous reality. It's not, I'm living here on earth, beat down, distressed, and one day things are going to get better. No. It's that if I truly focus on my identity in the spiritual, that I am seated in heavenly places, that's where I should get my sanity from, that I should not feel distressed anymore. I could say it's not that I'm going to die and I'm going to get, things are going to get better. If I focus on the actual, the reality of it, the spiritual not the natural things that are distressing me. If I focus on the spiritual, I can actually have the peace, the calm, the, the righteousness, and all of the things that Jesus seems to promise. Again, sometimes they seem foreign to us. We have, again, we could be honest here, right? Whereas Christians, I know we're supposed to just be floating in the clouds with Jesus all day and, and singing and singing hymns. However, there becomes moments where you feel broken. You feel like, I'm, maybe I'm not living the Christian life. And I believe that's because simultaneously we're living in two different realities. We're living in natural reality. It gets tough here. It really does. It gets tough here. You know, we see things that we don't want to hear. We, we, you know, we focus on things we don't want to focus on. But again, with eternal life, we, what we're supposed to be doing is focusing on the author and finisher of our faith. I'm getting ahead of myself, so I'm going to back up here. One thing I'm going to make clear is that if you don't understand anything I just said, that means that you need to get into the Bible. That, that's what we have to do. We have to get into the Bible. We have to understand what eternal life meant to the original audience. If you remember, the Gentiles, all of them, most of us, actually all of us, um, we were in the world without God, without hope, prior to Jesus Christ, prior to the new covenant. You could read Ephesians chapter 2 and it'll tell you that. The Jews had that law of blessings and curses. The Gentiles had nothing, nothing. And yet Jesus comes into the world. Not only is he healing that old covenant system, he's also bringing us into the riches of eternal life. So let's talk a little bit about this eternal life. Again, I want to make sure, you have to read your Bible if you want to understand eternal life. I found this really good quote that I want to make sure I mention. Our spiritual maturity will never exceed our knowledge of the Bible. That's Albert Moeller, by the way, if you want somebody to blame. But, uh, you, you know, again, your spiritual maturity will never exceed your knowledge of the Bible. We have to be in that book. We have to understand what that book is detailing. And then we could expect our lives, you know, you want to understand, maybe you say, I don't feel like I understand these things. Well, let me get more into that book. 
I have to get into that book. You're at a Bible church this morning. You had to imagine I'm going to be really adamant about the Bible. So, uh, again, that's what we want to do. We want to have understanding, audience relevance, and understand what they had, um, what they were waiting for and what they were hoping for. In John 10.10, one of my favorite Bible verses, it says, The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I come that they may have life and have it to the full. So for me, that's always been a big verse because I said, okay, so the thief. You know, in my life, I really don't have a hard time figuring out who the thief was that stole, killed, and destroyed everything God had for me. Everything that kept me from living life to the full, I'll tell you, I did a really good job of messing it all up. That carnal mind, you know, the carnal mind that is set at odds with God, read about in Romans chapter 8. I know that thief very well because God has a fulfilled life for me. However, I know what I was able to produce on my own. Not fulfilled life. Not life to the full at all. So Jesus says that I come that you might have life and have it to the full. So you would imagine I sit there and I say, okay, well then what, what does that mean? What that corresponds to is eternal life. Eternal life is life to the full. In contrast to your, the life to the full being stolen, killed, and destroyed. You ever feel like you know, you're having a great day and everything seems to be going great and then all of a sudden something happens and it just feels like a thief came to steal, kill, and destroy everything that you had planned for that day? All the good attitude you had, you know, you you think about Philippians chapter 2. I wake up in the morning and I say, I'm going to seek first the things that lead to peace, the things that lead that are edifying, the things that lead to love. And then all of a sudden, about three hours into your day, it feels like, you know, a thief just came and said, okay, I'm going to take that peace. I'm going to take that love. I'm going to take everything else. I'm going to bring it somewhere else. I, I, I hope I'm not the only one that's had those moments. So, you know, what ends up happening is I read that and I say, okay, so I'm supposed to have a fulfilled life. In Christ, John Piper said it better than me. He said, God is most glorified when you are most satisfied in him. I'm going to read that again. God is most glorified when you are most satisfied in him. Why? Because he came to give you fulfilled life. He came to give you life to the full. So he wants you to be satisfied with what he has given you. And I guess I would wonder, do Christians seem satisfied? I heard somebody say to me yesterday, let's face it. Even as Christians, we don't always feel or do we seem like we're set up for success. I said, no. I thought that was the whole purpose of Jesus. The thief comes to still kill and destroy. I come that you may have life and have it to the full. So, a concept I'm going to bring before you is a, it's called Christian hedonism. Hedonism simply means the pursuit of pleasure. Now, I believe that this world, they tell you all kinds of things lead to pleasure. Again, turn on your TV. You know, you can get this new thing, five, pay $15.99, and we'll send you the next new kitchen item that'll give you all the joy in the world, and it'll solve all your problems in the kitchen. Um, you know, they even have things that will solve all your problems in life. You watch the medicine you know, channel. You watch all the medications they'll offer you to help all your problems. Um, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. Those that Jesus comes that you may have life and have it to the full. So I look at the way this world offers satisfaction, and I say, no. That is a failure. Failure. That's the thief. Jesus comes to offer true satisfaction. But what happens is we have to focus on him. You see, this is where it's really going to boil down to, that if we want to have that life to the full that Jesus promised— We're going to have to figure out how to really focus on him. We're going to have to make him the the apple of our eye. Or, as Hebrews tells us, set your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. That's what we need. That's what we need to be doing. I'm going to take you to a couple passages here. I'm going to first read through 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 5. It says this. Know this first... That is not the passage. 1 Peter 3, 3 through 5. Talk about the Bible not saying what you want it to say. Uh, 2 Peter chapter 3, 3 through 5. 
Your adornment must not be merely external braiding hair and wearing golden jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be hidden. This is not the passage we want. I'm sorry. 1 Peter chapter 1, 3, 5. Maybe there was something there for somebody, so you know, write that down. Go home, read it. There might have been something in that passage. The passage I'm looking for is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Now, this hope that was reserved in heaven also corresponds to the city that was in heaven, that was going to come down as a bride adorned for her husband. I want to let you know this morning that I am not waiting for a city to come down from heaven, okay? Because the city that I'm a part of has already come down from heaven, and that is the new covenant. If you you do not understand that new Jerusalem to be the new covenant... All you have to do is read Galatians chapter 4, and it'll tell you that. That present-day Jerusalem was corresponded to Hagar, which corresponded to the Old Covenant. The New Jerusalem, which is from above, the city that was coming down from God, corresponds to the New Covenant. The hope that we now have, the city that that we had been waiting for, that has been now given to us. So we are living in that city. We're not waiting for a city. I'm not waiting to die to go live in the new covenant. I'm living in the new covenant right now. I'm living that fulfilled life, that eternal life right now. And that's important to consider. You have to know that. You have to know that this is not something that we're looking to die and one day obtain. Eternal life is something that we live now because do you know Jesus Christ now? If eternal life is to know Jesus Christ and to know God, that's something that begins right now. That's not whatever we fantasize about what's going to happen when we die and live in, in heaven forever. However, yes, your knowledge of God will continue with you when you biologically cease. And you will continue to be in the presence of God, absolutely. Because that other realm, this realm, I imagine you know, we die here, we don't know what happens. But in the spiritual realm, the spirit doesn't die. So if you're one with Christ and you're alive in that spiritual realm, you don't die. You have eternal life now with God, that you are in the presence of God eternally with no condemnation, no fear, no thousand years in Hades, none of that. We have a fulfilled life with Jesus Christ now. So what do we do when we see that the trials come? Because, again, what I'm saying hopefully sounds very good and spiritual, right? Eternal life, it's fulfilled life. Jesus, great, yay. But then we have to talk about practicalities, right? There's things that happen, right? You're facing real life, and you say, okay, well, what happens when this happens? How do I maintain my eternal life? If you're saying that in Jesus I should be happy, I should be offering up praise, I should be living a victorious life, if I may use that, you should be living a victorious life in Christ, then what happens when troubles come? What happens when you know, we seem to be at odds with, uh, with peace or you know, things that seem to happen in our society? And there's two passages I wanted to bring you to to highlight my points this morning. The first one is going to be Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 32. And I'm going to read. Immediately he made the disciples get into a boat and go ahead of him to the other side, where, while he sent the crowds away. And he had sent the crowds away, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. But the boat was already a long distance from the land, battered on by the waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. 
But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take courage, it is I. Do not be afraid. Peter said to him, Lord, if, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, Come. And Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But seeing the wind, he became frightened, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately Jesus stretched out his hand, took hold of him, and said to him, You of little faith, why did you doubt? When they got into the boat, the wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, You are certainly God's son. When they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret. And when men of that place recognized him, they sent word into all the surrounding district and brought all who were sick to him. And they implored him that they might touch the fringe of his coat. As many as touched him were cured. So again here, we see Simon Peter's in a boat. All of a sudden, they, they see Jesus. They've been with Jesus for quite some time now. They've seen some miracles. All of a sudden, they see him floating on the water. Not going to get into all the ghost stuff right now. Sorry. We'll tell scary stories another time. Um, however, um, what you see is Simon Peter gets out of the boat. He, well, he tells Jesus. This is important, too. He sees Jesus, and he says, if it's you, you will tell me to get out of the boat. In other words, if it's Jesus, Jesus will challenge me to do something that is not what I would naturally do. If it's you, challenge me to walk on water right now. And what is Simon Peter? Jesus says, come on, get out of the boat. Let's go. Simon Peter, obviously acting upon what he already understood. This is the Messiah. This is God. I, I'm fine. I'm going to get out of the boat. I'm going to start walking. He starts walking. All of a sudden, what's going on? I'm walking on water. Oh. And he begins to drown. He focused on the storm. So there's a message for us right there. You should see it already. That when, you're, when God tells you to come and live that fulfilled life, come to me. Live that fulfilled life. Take this eternal life. You're supposed to remember who he is and focus on that and get out of the boat and go. However, unfortunately, the all too common problem is that we'll look at the water. We'll look at the things going on and we'll say, well, what about that? What about, you know, God, you've called me to live a fulfilling life to you, but look at what's going on in the world. And we begin to focus on the storm. And then what happens? You begin to drown in that storm. The storm begins to take hold of you. Rather than, you, he was just walking on water. I want you to catch that. He was walking on water and then all of a sudden decided, I'm going to focus on the mess because for some reason our mind naturally goes to the mess rather than staying consistent on the things that we already know about God that's in front of us. How often I do that. Oh, ye of little faith, I'll tell you. So again, it's important for us to understand that, that we're called to set our eyes on Jesus. Another passage that I'm not going to read but I'm going to allude to is in Hebrews chapter 12, just a whole chapter. The whole chapter of Hebrews 12 is written to Jewish Christians that are facing persecution. So these Jewish Christians, these Hebrew Christians, are basically facing persecution. And if you believe, like I do, that the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Hebrews, then you believe the Apostle Paul is writing to these Hebrew Christians, basically telling them, stand firm, persevere. Jesus is the Messiah. Set your eyes on him. Don't focus on the people that are persecuting you, the Judaizers that are trying to set you into confusion, the Gentiles that are now bringing in hopes of false teaching and all these strange things. No, do not focus on that. Set your eyes on Jesus, and you'll have that life that he promised. That's the biblical instruction. That's how we live, we appreciate, and we maintain eternal life. Not something I'm going to die and one day obtain. My promise is that I can live victorious here. You see, that's what I have through Jesus Christ, that I know God, I know his teachings, and I can live that life right now. So now I want to give you some very practical steps on how you could be doing this. So again, I hope, hopefully you've made it clear that you need to set your eyes on Jesus, that that's where your eternal life is. Your fulfilled life is found when the storms come, and you say, I know my God bigger than this storm. I know my God bigger than this stuff. He fed, we said it this morning, that in our prayers, that he fed 5,000, yet look at the little things that we, we stress about in our society. 
He fed 5,000 people with five loaves of bread. And yet we stress about some of the strangest things. I got 30 people showing up. I only have 30 plates of food. That's not enough. You see, we're all of a sudden the little things. We stress out about the little things without allowing the bigger picture to truly be a part of our life. And I'm going to give you some things that you should take out of this, how you should put this in a practical application in your life. The first thing is, is that if I was Simon Peter and I was in that moment about the walking on the water, one thing that really stands out is that he needed to be in that moment. You ever feel like you don't live fully in the moment? I know I do. I feel like I'm always sometimes on the go too much, that I'm not living in the moment, really allowing the moment to take hold of me. Simon Peter had to allow that moment to take hold of him. He had to recognize that is Jesus, and if that's Jesus, he's going to tell me to get out of the boat and come to him because that's the way my God works. My God challenges me to do something that wouldn't naturally seem possible. So you have to realize the moment. Be in the moment. I actually heard a good quote from a Jim Elliott, a former Christian, well, Christian martyr. He said, wherever you are, be fully there. Be fully there. We have to be in, in that moment. You know, I think about if I'm not fully in a moment, I'm not taking in all the lessons that can be learned from that moment. Think about that. You're not taking in the full situation. You're not taking in the work of God in that moment. Even the trials. Again, if you're in a trial situation, you know, I imagine Simon Peter on the water and the storm comes. He had to take that in. And then there was something to be remembered from that. I had such a focus on my God at one point, And all of a sudden I noticed, I looked at the storm, and then the storm became stronger than my God. How? How does that happen? And I'm right there, he needed to take that moment. And in, in order to find that fulfilled life, you have to be in those moments. You have to live in those moments and allow those moments to take hold of you, to truly give you a lesson, to give you satisfaction. Again, you're not going to find satisfaction if you're not fully in a moment. You ever, okay, on another side of things, you ever feel like you went to a party and then you left the party and then you feel like you weren't really at the party? You don't even have the joy that everybody else at the party had. I've done that. I've gone to parties where I feel like I just didn't spend enough time in the moment actually relishing what was happening, taking the satisfaction of the moment, instead probably focused on the next day. Jesus said something about focusing on the next day, didn't he? He said something about, you know, the day, do not focus on tomorrow because today has enough evil in, it, uh, in and of itself. Because that's what we naturally do. I believe the wandering human mind naturally sets up, I'm in a great moment, I should be satisfied, I should be enjoying the moment. No, I'm too busy thinking about what I need to do tomorrow, what, what I need to do next week. Too much. So live in the moment. Allow the moment to speak to you. Imagine, again, being the first century Jews. We, we look to the first century Jews and we understand all that they had for us. Yet they suffered persecution. They had to be in that moment. If you read Hebrews chapter 12, the Apostle Paul is not, he's just saying, he's not saying, run away from persecution. No, he's saying live in that moment. Accept the persecution for this time because something greater is about to be revealed. So live in that moment. Understand that moment. So again, it even speaks to us in the moments of trial, that we should be fully in those moments. You know, I, I know that sounds harsh, right? When you're in a trial and you have to sit there and say, why am I here? How do I fully understand this situation from all spectrums? What is God trying to tell me? What is God trying to challenge me with? It's important. The second thing, which to me is the primary, is spiritual disciplines. If you do not have spiritual disciplines in effect in your life, that's why you're not living the fulfilled life. And I'm going to explain some of that to you. I actually decided to do this for you because I wanted to prove a point. So I just want to show you two stacks of notes. Right? You see all these notes here? All right, you see that? That's one pile. You see all these crazy notes here? All right, that's two piles. All these are, these two books, are just my notes from 2006 on my own spiritual journey. That's it. These are nothing else, not my agenda books. These are just notes about my spiritual journey from 2006. All of this. 
So you think that I ever have a time where I could go back and see if I grew? I get to read books all the time. And I, I've mentioned this to many of you before, where I have moments where I could go back and see answered prayer. I have a whole book full of prayers. Whole book. This whole book is full of prayers. My dog liked it, too. Um, but uh, the whole book is full of prayers. And I get to go back and look at what God has answered in my life. Going back to 2006. I have books for each and every year. Every year, all the way up to, I think this is the one I'm writing in now. I have so much in these books. And if you're not taking notes, and you're not detailing your spiritual journey, you're missing out. And I'm telling you, that's why you're not living the fulfilled life. It sounds ludicrous to be in a church this morning where somebody's going to tell you, if you're not taking notes... You're missing out. That's why you're not living to the fullest extent of life to the full. You need to take notes. I'll tell you why. Some of the spiritual disciplines I've come to appreciate would be prayer. Hopefully everybody in this room knows prayer is a spiritual discipline that you should be partaking of unceasingly, if not every day. Unceasingly, if not every day. Uh, Some other spiritual disciplines would be meditation. Sometimes we just need to relax, right? That that would be a fair spiritual uh, discipline. Um, What are some other spiritual disciplines you might think of? Could exercise be classified as a spiritual discipline? Reading your Bible would be classified as a spiritual discipline. Worshiping God through song. You have a reason to sing. We said that this morning, didn't we? We have a reason to sing. These are all spiritual disciplines that have something that you should be doing in your life to see an effect that you're probably expecting. Because I know, trust me, I've talked to everybody in this room. I know almost everybody in this room has told me at one point, I don't live, I don't feel that I'm living to the fullest extent of what God has for me. Well, here's your invite. Live in the moment. Start spiritual disciplines. I do common prayer almost every morning. I'm not going to be super legalistic here. Um, I try to do it almost every morning. And, you know, I go through a common prayer. And it begins my day thinking about the things of God. Do you do that? What's your waking thoughts? Think about those things because that's the purpose of spiritual disciplines. And let's say you're bored with the, okay, I get it. Pray, worship, read my Bible, et cetera, et cetera. Well, then begin to be creative. There's nothing wrong with being creative, and I think we need that. So some of the things I've worked on, and you can actually see them in some of my notebooks if you're ever interested, is uh, new monasticism. One day I practiced on learning about monks, on how monks prayed because I said they must have a better handle on praying than I do. So I, I learned from them. I have a whole study on that in my notes. I made my bucket list. I figured, you know, when I'm having a down day and it seems like life really isn't all going the way I want it to, I'm just going to do something I want to do with my life. And I have a list of about 144 different things. Everything from visit a persecuted Christian country to uh, what are some of the things I should say from the pulpit. Um, I have one that's fight a cage match and win. Probably not the thing you want to say from the the pulpit. Um, (laughs) Let's see. um, Lead 50 people to Christ. Lead somebody to Christ on their deathbed. Um, I have a bunch of other funny ones I'm trying to think of. But again, I have a bunch that I can pull from when I'm having a down moment. And I could say, maybe I need to do something a little bit different today to be fully in another moment. Because maybe I'm fully in prayer every day. Maybe I'm fully in the word. But now maybe I need to do something different to get a different experience. That way I would see God move in my life. Are you doing different things or are you always doing the same thing? Maybe we need to do some different things. Nothing wrong with bringing those things into our life. Simon Peter walking on water, I imagine, was a different thing that day. Yeah, I would imagine that was a little different than his normal life. So again, we need different things. What I am going to do this week is if you're interested, uh, after service, I'll ask you for your email. I'm going to send you a host of different spiritual exercises I have done. I actually, I'm working on one right now called the Ignatian Workout. And Ignatius of Loyola was, I believe, a 15th century church father 
who he created a thing called spiritual exercises. And it's four exercises that bring you into different prayers. Last week I worked on one that was follow the leader. And it talked about how to be more obedient, uh, how to be more obedient in following Jesus Christ as king. Me, I found that to be a good challenge. There was another week it was focusing on my flaws and allowing you to do like a spiritual exercise of understanding your flaws and seeing Christ as the, the, the true power. That you could be broken and Christ will be your strength. What does it say in the word? That where I am weak, he is strong. So again, we can see these, these different things if we would just take the time out to put some spiritual disciplines in our life. And I want to invite you into that journey because I believe that's how we set our eyes on the author and finisher of our faith. When those storms come, that's how we stay focused on Jesus Christ. And then the third thing I'm going to give you is that you need to rightly judge situations. If we do not feel that we're living the fulfilled life, we need to make good judgment. And what I like to say, maintain a good conscience. Right? If I make good judgments, I know if I do this today, how am I going to feel about this later on, tomorrow, next week? You know, What if we actually consciously did that? Because again, that verse I mentioned in the beginning, 1 Timothy 1.5, the goal of our instruction is this, love from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. So I think about that. How do I have a good conscience toward God and man? I'm going to bring that quote up I had mentioned before by John Piper. God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. So what if I propose that you, in doing right judgment, what if you were to ask yourself these questions in everything that you do? Is God going to be glorified if I do this? Am I going to be satisfied? Now, let me tell you a little bit about satisfaction. Again, there's a false satisfaction that is rampant in this world. How often the human mind will tell me, I'll be satisfied if I do that, only to figure out when I really look at the situation from all the corners, that is not satisfying. That is not satisfying. So how do we go about figuring out what is truly satisfying? Well, then maybe we need to reverse the question. We say, will I be satisfied? Is God going to be glorified? You see, that fixed the problem. Because now I'm going to say, any given situation, I'm going to say, am I going to be satisfied? And maybe there's things where we might carnally feel we would be satisfied. But then the next question pops up, is God going to be glorified? And if everything is contingent upon that, if God is glorified when I'm satisfied, those are the two questions I need to be asking about almost every decision I make. Is God going to be glorified? Am I going to be satisfied? So I'm going to end my sermon with this. Go home, get a notebook. Start understanding, appreciating, and living and maintaining your eternal, fulfilled life. Because this isn't something that we're going to die and receive. This is something we have now. And we need to live in that reality. Join me in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for the free gift of eternal life that you have given us, Lord. And I thank you for the challenge that we would take up to consider that this is not something that we're going to live after we die, Lord. This is something that we're living right now that we would just take hold of eternal life and that we would truly see your power, your life, and your truth manifested through us, Lord. And that we would have faith that it is exactly that that would be the healing of the nations. Lord, I thank you for the privilege to be a part of your people. And I thank you that you will continue to give us the unction through your spirit to grow in the knowledge and grace of you. Lord, we magnify your name in Jesus' mighty name.